Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to New Business Paradigms, conscious commentary on business and society. I'm Matt Renner, the executive director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's president and founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. On today's show, we'll be speaking with Mark Armstrong, Mark is the executive director of the Public Banking Institute. He'll t- tell us about the movement pushing for public banking. A public bank is a relatively simple idea. It's just like a private bank, but it's controlled by the public institution and operates with a public interest as its mission. Truly a new business paradigm. Uh, after the interview, Ronaldo and I are going to answer listener questions about which companies are hurting our planet the most and what individuals can do to help fight the worst effects of environmental degradation. But first, Ronaldo, let's talk about the major current events in the, in the news right now. Hello. How are you doing, Matt? I'm doing well, Ronaldo. How are you? Well, pretty good. You know, as I said to someone, I'm giving a speech tomorrow morning to a local investment club. And as I said last night when they asked me uh, what I'm going to talk about, and I said, it's kind of interesting. This call occurred at around uh, 7 o'clock California time. And I said, you know, it's kind of interesting because until a couple hours ago, I couldn't have answered that question, what I'm going to talk about tomorrow. That's right. We have just, yeah. we, we've just come through something that's so preposterously crazy, it's hard to put it into words. Uh, let me just say that the show is being recorded on the 17th of October, literally one day after the, uh, the U.S. Congress, and specifically the Republican members of the U.S. Congress, did the right thing by the United States government and by the people of the United States, and frankly, the planetary citizenry, and backed off this insane idea of holding the debt ceiling hostage. Now, for our listeners are probably more sophisticated than most, so they know that the debt ceiling is an anachronism which only exists in the United States. No other modern country has it. In other words, in every other country, once the parliament or the Congress approves an expenditure, it becomes lawful. It is an expense, which is the case in the United States. So every expenditure of the U.S. government must be approved by the United States Congress, and specifically the House of Representatives, where all money bills originally. With regard, however, to the issue about the debt ceiling, the debt ceiling is really just an ancient appendix that shouldn't be there anymore, because if you don't raise the debt ceiling, it means you won't pay the debts that the Congress already legally incurred. So again, the debts are there. We owe the money. The Congress, this Republican Congress, approved every penny of the spending, and refusing to raise the debt ceiling so they can pay for that spending is sort of like refusing to pay your credit card bill after it comes in at the end of the month, and you just can't do that because the number one thing in the world today that creates security for investors is what's called the full faith and credit clause of the U.S. dollar, meaning that the United States government for 200 years has said, Any obligation of the United States of America 
we stand behind with the full faith and credit of the whole nation that we will always pay our debts. To call it into question is to not only invite catastrophic economic consequences, which it would, but it also invites catastrophic sociological consequences, some of which we've already paid. I'm going to come back to that in a second. I want to make two points, and then we can go on with the show. First point, there's been a strong move under the, at, the, at the international financial markets level, where with all the global flows of capital occur, where Iran and China specifically have been teaming up to create an alternative to the U.S. dollar as what's called the reserve currency. Now, what is a reserve currency? The reserve currency means that the U.S. dollar is considered the, the, the currency of last resort. So if you want to know what something's worth, you measure it in U.S. dollars. So if a Chinese banker wants to pay an um, Arab oil merchant, he pays him in U.S. dollar equivalents. So when you remove the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency, what you're doing is taking the United States out of the central position it currently has for all international capital flows. Now, why that's right. significant is to do so means that the United States' influence in the global economy, of course, goes away. But more importantly, the stability of having one country who can act in that capacity evaporates, and all of a sudden you have a wild west of competing currencies, fluctuating monetary systems, and without question, you'd have a collapse of the modern monetary system of the planet. So that's what people were saying, it's okay, we can do this. So, so when, you, when you hear some Republican person saying, oh, it's okay, it appears to the debt ceiling, that's crazy talk, that's insane. Uh, you got to straighten people out and say, no, you know what, that's not okay. It's really crazy. Now let me give you a couple of statistics and I'll end. This is my second point. What did this last little Donnybrook cost us? Well, according to a report issued by S&P this morning, over $24 billion is what this last little dust-up over the uh, holding the hostage, holding the debt ceiling hostage to the Obamacare changes that the Republicans want, which they didn't get. It's a complete failure, and it cost us $24 billion. And that, I don't believe, includes the 60 basis points of increased interest on the entire U.S. debt every day, which was put in place in 2011, the last time they pulled this stunt. And it's still there, that 60 basis points penalty. My guess is, and this is according to Finch, who was one of the rating services, who's put us on credit watch at the U.S. Remember, S&P downgraded us from AAA to AA+, which is the first time in the history of the United States in the last 150 years that we've done that. Now, the reason for that is because, according to Fitch in their announcement today, and this echoes what S&P did in 2011, the political instability of the United States is the factor that causes the rating services to doubt whether or not the full faith and credit of the United States is still good for 100 cents on the dollar. That means that the promise we will pay has to be discounted below 100 cents on the dollar to some risk portion, a penny, two pennies, whatever. And every dollar, therefore, is one to two pennies cheaper instantly, globally. We're talking tens of billions of dollars worth of losses. Last statistic. According to macroeconomic advisors, which, which just released a report this morning, it was in the Wall Street Journal, it's been in several places carried, and they did this for the Pete Peterson Foundation, which, as people will recall, Pete Peterson was a Republican Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, Peterson Foundation hired macroeconomic advisors and said, what did this thing cost? Their estimate, 
is it three-tenths of a percent of GDP growth. Now, that might not sound like a lot to you, but we only grew at 1.2% at the current quarter. So if you reduce that by 0.3, that means you've got less than 1% GDP growth probably coming this quarter. Worst of all, and this is much worse, at a time when we're struggling to create jobs, the macroeconomic advisory report says that we cost ourselves six-tenths of a point in jobs, which means 900,000 jobs were lost. All the jobs gains which have occurred in the last four and a half months have been wiped out in the last couple of weeks. That's how crazy this talk is. Yeah. Yeah, and Ronaldo, I have a question about that. So a lot of our listeners remember the 2008 financial collapse after Lehman Brothers went bankrupt and the whole monetary system froze. Uh, Just for perspective, in terms of uh, debt ceiling breach or default of, of the U.S. debt, what would, how, how much would it look like the Lehman Brothers situation and the 2008 financial collapse, and in what ways would it be different? Well, first of all, um, we know probably it cost about two-tenths of a point in GDP growth, and this one cost three-tenths. So it, this is 50% larger than Lehman. And that's without, a, that's without a debt ceiling breach. Yeah, that's, that's without the debt ceiling breach. Yeah, I'll come right. back to the debt ceiling breach in a second. This is just what we did. Here, here's the foot we shot already, right? We shot our foot off, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Three-tenths of a point doesn't sound like big money. When you multiply it by $16 trillion, it turns out to be many billions of dollars. So when you say we went from a two-tenths of a GDP loss of, in the last Lehman Brothers shutdown, uh, which then was occasioned by a complete dramatic global recession, which drove it even further, this loss is at 0.3% GDP growth, or 50% larger. Now, it's not going to trigger a global recession. It may actually cause a slight dip in the U.S. into negative territory for the third quarter. That's entirely possible. And I'm hoping that the fourth quarter will bounce back because of deferred spending. Remember, all those federal government employees, thank God, they passed a bill in just in order to permit the government to pay them for their furloughed time. So isn't it amazing? We just paid the government workers. When we're trying to reduce the deficit, we just paid all government workers for three weeks to stay home. Now, is that crazy or what? Yeah. Okay, but, but but to put the question to the final question, which was, if we had have pierced the debt ceiling and Lehman Brothers triggered the worst recession since the Great Depression, what would having pierced the debt ceiling look like? And I believe most of the sophisticated economic thinkers that I heard in the last two weeks, the word that kept coming up was inconceivable, thermonuclear. It's a nuclear weapon. In fact, Warren Buffett, I believe, said, the thought of piercing the debt ceiling is a nuclear weapon. It should be taken off the table and never used ever, meaning we need to eliminate this anachronism called the debt ceiling. Once the Congress approves something to be spent, that's it. It gets spent. That's where the fight should be on the budget, on what's going to get spent, not on whether we're going to pay our bills. And, And any congressperson, and I'm going to include people by name, Louis Gohmert, I'm going to Stephen King, and I can list another 28 people in that ridiculously that, that cabal of people who intentionally talk crazy. By the way, I'm leaving, Ray, uh, I'm leaving Senator Cruz out of this for a moment. But I'm talking about the congresspeople in the, in the House who talk crazy. You've got to start, folks, you've got to tell them they are crazy when they talk that way. 
If, what they're doing is they're pandering to an extremely right-wing ideological base, which I understand from some commentators this morning. They think they actually won something. They fought the good fight. No, they cost the United States of America an enormous amount of money, 900,000 jobs, and they've given China the right to go public, which they did three days ago, saying it's time to replace the U.S. as the reserve currency because they're no longer politically stable. That's an amazing weapon to hand China at a time when we couldn't even show up for two summits in Asia because our president couldn't get there because of the shutdown and his staff had all been fired. So I, I just want to bring to people's attention, this is not just people playing in a sandbox throwing sand at each other. This is insane. And what we have to do right now, everybody listening to my voice, two things you've got to do. One, tell everybody you can, listen to this program. Get people listening so we can start talking to each other about what sane people can do to restore sanity in the system, because it is your job that will be effective. It is your economy that's being effective. It's what you're going to pay for your home mortgage that's being effective. It's whether your kids will get to go to school and college. It's, it's the meals on wheels that the veterans, 600000 a day, missed. It's the elder care. It's all of these issues that are so critical to our country are not getting addressed and, in fact, are getting harmed. And so we need to take a stand. And one of the first things we have to do is we've got to call something for what it is. I remember Sam Irvine in the famous Watergate hearings when, he was, when Dixon was trying to pretend like he wasn't guilty. And Irvine said, look, if it walks like a horse and it runs like a horse, it's a horse. If somebody like Louis Gohmert or Stephen King or the rest of that 30 or 40 cabal says something that is absolutely bodaciously crazy, then you have to call him on it and say so. By the way, I include Senator Lee in that. He says crazy things. Senator Cruz is a worse problem. Senator Cruz is not crazy. Senator Cruz is smart like Joseph McCarthy was in the 50s. Senator Cruz wants to become the President of the United States and is willing to do anything to get there. I, but don't forget, this is a supremely well-trained Harvard lawyer. Brilliant mind, considered one of the better litigators of his generation. Cruz is doing one thing and one thing only. He's running for president, and he wants to aggregate the power of all of the right-wing Tea Party to see if he can take on the Republican establishment. I believe he will lose in that effort, and I believe he will continue to shadow the Republican Party in the process. However, what I see him doing is not crazy. I see it as absolutely immoral, unethical, and extraordinarily dangerous. It's guys like Senator Cruz who would yell Zig Heil in 1936 for a guy named Adolf Hitler. This man is frightening. And people ought to start considering what he's doing and why he's doing it and, and rein him in. Do not support him, folks, because if you do, in fact, let your senators and your congressmen know this man needs to be controlled the way ultimately Joseph McCarthy was controlled. If you want to read some interesting chapters in history, read about Eisenhower, who had to deal with the McCarthy era and how he had to play that out. And I'm calling for every elected representative in this country to start boxing in Cruz and, and calling him for what he is, which is a fascist. And I think at this point in time, he needs to be brought to bear. I love, I love many of my Republican friends, and I feel sorry for them that their, their, their party has been taken from them, as so many Republican commentators have said. I would yeah. urge my Republican friends to consider creating a new party called the Independents. I believe you would attract an enormous number of Democrats to that party, and I believe you would attract an enormous number of Independents, which is the number one party in the country right now. So I would urge you, if the Tea Party is going to primary responsible Republicans, Republicans, don't be the Whigs of this century. Go out and create a party where you don't have to worry about this lunacy on the, on the right primarying you. 
Last point. If you want to know how fast a party can disappear in America, I'll ask you one simple question. When Abraham Lincoln first went into politics, what was his political affiliation? We know by the time he got to be president, he was a Republican. When he started in politics, he was a Whig. They'd elected three presidents. It was a powerful national party. It completely shattered. What's going to happen to the Republican Party, I believe, is it's going to have to transform itself and either purge these radical elements so they can create a Tea Party, which is separate from the Republicans, or the Republicans will have to create a party of their own, which would embrace Barry Goldwater, which would embrace Ronald Reagan, which would embrace Nelson Nelson Rockefeller. Because there's a Republican Party out there that should be able to embrace all those people, and I believe it would embrace a whole lot of Democrats as well and, and centrists. That's a pretty radical call, and I think it's it's accurate uh, in terms of the political outlook. But if we zoom out, there's something going on here that's different, um, and you have a pretty uh, a constitutional solution actually to uh, what, what you've seen going on in this reckless fight to with the small party minority of uh, uh, the Republican Party controlling the actions of the House. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, a constitutional convention and that concept. Yeah, and by the way, I hope our listeners would like to hear more about this, because I'm going to do a short version this morning, but I would love to do a whole show on this, uh, Matt. Yeah. I think it's a great thing to talk about. I think the Civil War never ended. See, the Civil War was a clash of cultures more than it was really about slavery. Slavery was an element of that culture. But you had an agrarian culture that was very aristocratic, very few people at the top, the large landowners, and the middle class basically working in fairly pecuniary conditions. Uh, the tradesmen were basically never could accumulate any, any real wealth and couldn't send their kids to high school, let alone college. And then you had this enormous base of slaves underneath it. Well, that, their at aristocratic uh, approach uh, basically was the culture of the South. And what happened is, although the bullets stopped flying, there was a military victory as between the North and the South. The Civil War ended for militarily. It never ended culturally. That is to say, that's why you oh, continue to I see... I think we uh, lost Ronaldo's connection there. Let me go ahead and get him back on the line. And... All right, I think we're back. Let me uh, go ahead and... Hey, Ronaldo, are we back? Hey, Ronaldo, are you there? Yeah, right here. Can you hear me? All right, sorry about that. Yeah, I think we're reconnected now. I don't know what happened there. Uh, maybe our blog talk radio thing went out because uh, uh, we couldn't find you. We couldn't get back on. Um, so let's I believe just wrap we're live now. Up. Yeah. Are we live now? Yeah. Great. So let me just wrap this up, and we'll go a few minutes over when we so the show will, and maybe we can even edit out the blank spot. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. Matt, the, the point is there was a cultural war, the Civil War, and the culture never. That's why you're still seeing um, Confederate flags flown over large strips of land on the I-95 corridor up to Washington between Virginia and Washington. It's why people have wanted to fly the, the Confederate flag until two years ago over the Georgia State Capitol. It's it's why people in the South believe that, they don't, that they, they don't belong to this country. In other words, they want to secede. In fact, uh, the cover of the magazine, which I like a lot, The Week, basically the cover said uh, the, the Second uh, Civil War. What's going on is there are a whole lot of people 
who don't really want to be in the United States of America. And I think we should let them go. And the way to do that is let them have a constitutional convention. Like, let's get every state together. As the, as the framers of the Constitution anticipated we would do if we had these kind of problems. And rather stay in a bad marriage that we're in now, let's let everybody who wants to choose to be in the United States by state choose to do so. And I want to come back to Texas in a moment. Because in the United States of America, we believe that everybody should have a vote. Black, white, brown, women, women everybody gets a vote, right? right. Now, if you're 18 years of age and above, you should get to vote. Well, not everybody in the, in the red states believes that. In fact, in the state of Arizona, they're setting up a two-tier voting system so they can restrict access to voting in state elections, and they can eliminate students. They can make it harder for blacks and browns to vote, and that way the white population of Arizona will be able to control state government even though they can't legally control who votes in federal elections. Well, that's what the South did. That's, that's, that's what the whole Civil War was about. So the culture hasn't changed. And what we have to do is say, you know what, folks? If you, if you want to have a nation where Jesus is in charge of the government, great, you can do that. It's just not the United States of America where we believe in separation of church and state. Folks, if you want to have a government in a country where they teach that evolution is a fraud and that Jesus walked with the dinosaurs, great. You can have a trivialized education system. You can graduate idiots if you want, but that's not the United States. If you want to put vaginal probes in women's bodies to discourage them from having um, basic procedures that they're entitled to as a matter of women's health, great, you can do that. You just can't do that in the United States of America. Now, I don't approve of any of those things, but if and there's a longer you want to have everybody armed to the teeth, you want people to be allowed to, 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 to buy any weapon they want, including nuclear weapons, you want to be able to buy howitzers, you want to be able to buy laser-fired guided missiles, you can do that in another country. You just can't do that in America. Now, if people want to leave it, those, these deep-dyed uh, Tea Party people want to create their own states with their own rules, and they don't want women to vote, and they don't want to have women to have control of their own body, and they, they don't want to educate blacks or browns or let them vote, fine. They have to go then and say, okay, you know what, this is what we're going to do. You people in America, you do what you're going to do. And there should be many bullets, no war, no violence. Just say, okay, state by state, decide whether you want to be in America or you want to leave. You want to leave, God bless, goodbye. And, 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 and I, I'll develop, I'll be happy to develop a 10-year plan for how to separate these two countries. And I just want you to know, with great trepidation and, and pain in his heart, no less a visionary than Mahatma Gandhi came to the same conclusion about India when he finally relented after a fast that almost cost him his life. He relented and he split India into two countries, Muslims in Pakistan, Hindus in India. Why? Because he couldn't force them culturally to live together and he knew it would be more violent and more trouble. So we have to come to the realization that there are certain people living within the borders of what is currently the United States of America that really don't want to live in this country by its rules and actually believe that their job is to elect congressmen who will destroy the government. That's what they believe. And if you notice, that's what the Tea Party congressmen, these, that 30 group in what I call the lunatic fringe, what they've been doing is consciously destroying the government because they believe that's what they were sent to Washington to do. If that's the case... The people who sent them, they shouldn't bother spending all this energy trying to destroy our country. They should decide to go get a country of their own, and I will help them do it. And by the <laughs> way, I think it's great. It's just perfect. One last thing, and that's Texas. The first state that should go is Texas. For what reason? First of all, 100% of the Texas congressional delegation, as you pointed out this morning, Matt, voted to not approve uh, the measure that reopened the government and lifted the debt ceiling. The, the Republican the members. The Republican, the Republican members. Yeah, all Republican yeah. members, right? 
hundred percent, right? The Democrats from Texas voted with the Democrats to right, uh, keep the House so all that, the to reopen. All Democrats, without exception, I believe, voted to reopen, no matter what state right. they were from. Yep. Okay, so all those Republicans voted, which constitutes the majority of the Republicans. Now, Texas was a separate country that had won its freedom from Mexico when it entered the Union. Because of that, Texas got in its, in its annexation documents the right at any time to secede from the Union if it so chose chose and become again the independent republic of texas well i believe it's time for texas to exercise that right i think texas should do that they should set an example and they should send out a call to everybody else who wants to go to a constitutional convention and at that convention texas should lead a delegation of those states those deep red states that really do not want to be in the united states of america and would rather see the government of the u.s collapse than participate those states are probably Arizona, probably Mississippi, Texas, Oklahoma, uh, Louisiana, Georgia, South Carolina. North Carolina could go either way. Kentucky, Tennessee maybe. Okay, all those states should decide if they want to leave. And by the way, somebody said to me once, well, what if, you know, like Nebraska wants to leave and it's not contiguous to the Old South? No problem. We live in a virtual world. You could have Nebraska could be part of the, the Confederate States of America, not a problem. They don't have to be sticking next to each other's border. We live in a virtual world. Easy to, to arrange that, not a problem. So a thoughtful plan needs to be put in action, and, and the framers of the Constitution, the founding fathers of this nation had a very simple solution. When stuff got to the point where the people needed to reshake the bag, to rejigger this, the puzzle, they provided this mechanism called a constitutional convention. So a majority of states can call it, once you're there, a majority can decide what they're going to do. I think it's time for the people of the United States, whether you're blue or red, it's time to have a constitutional convention because a lot of red state people want to secede, and I don't think we should say about the point of a gun they can't. You know, whether Lincoln did the right thing or not when Fort Sumter was taken by the Confederates remains to be seen. It certainly was a bloody conflict, the worst in our nation's history in terms of percentage dead. And I think that we, don't, we now have grown to the point we know that you can't keep people in a country when it's time for them to leave. So if their culture yeah. is so alien to ours, I say, okay, let's help them go if that's what they want. And if they don't want that, let's develop a constitutional convention which will make it illegal for Citizens United-type rulings, which will make it clear that corporations are not people. And we'll start to address some of the, the long-term ills in our society, including the disproportionate amount of money we don't spend for education and the disproportionate amount of money we spend for, for, for incarcerating people. All those things can be sorted out if we were able to have a cohesive country that all was aligned, and I think that would come out of a constitutional convention. So I That's really think this, this, this idea is really interesting, Ronaldo, and I, and I do want to explore it at length in a, in a future show, because when I first heard it, I thought it was too radical and it was so controversial that no one would go along with it. But once we fleshed it out and continued the conversation, we really did come to convince a lot of people that we spoke with about this, and it, it does make a lot of sense. So I want to invite our listeners to write in on this topic to info at worldbusiness.org, and we'll share some of your thoughts when we go into depth about this. Uh, next, I want to turn to our guest. Today's guest is Mark Armstrong. He's the executive director of the Public Banking Institute and has an MBA from Anderson School of Management at UCLA. Uh, he studied information systems and organizational behavior, and he has extensive experience in technical strategy consulting, sales, business development, and operations management with technology companies and large commercial banks, as well as, uh, I believe, the post office. 
Mark, I'm going to turn your mic on. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, hi, Matt. Hi, Ronaldo. Hey, Mark. Welcome to the show. I'm sorry about our technical glitch earlier, but uh, we're going to continue to do our interview with you, and we'll make up the time later. Okay, that's fine. Well, Mark, it's a pleasure to introduce you to, the, to, the, to our audience. I just want to tell people that um, the Public Banking Institute, uh, which Ellen founded a number of years ago, uh, after writing a really great book on the subject, uh, was first brought to my attention many, many years ago by Hazel Henderson, who's an extremely big fan of yours, Mark. I'm sure you know that. Right. And Hazel, being a long-term, you know, like 18-year fellow of the Academy, I was grateful for introducing us to this concept. And very recently, uh, Mark and I and his staff worked on actually a bill which was proposed for the Hawaiian House of the Legislature. Uh, unfortunately, it was the bill was entered, uh, did not pass, and uh, because the author of the bill uh, is no longer the Speaker of the Assembly after at the House, he's been I guess he was 16 years. Calvin Say was the Speaker there, and the man with whom I worked. Uh, we're not as sure that they're going to go forward with public banking in Hawaii, although we wish they would. That's my most recent foray into your world. What I'd like you to do, Mark, is to just tell people a little bit about what public banking is as a concept and a little bit about your experience in North Dakota. Okay, great. So so I thought it was a pretty radical idea until I uh, joined you in this show, and, and now it seems positively mundane compared to a constitutional extension. <laughs> <laughs> great. Welcome <laughs> Welcome Which I completely support. <laughs> so, uh, n- nice to hear you expound on that, Ronaldo. So, uh, so, so public banking is a very straightforward concept. It's it's, it's merely taking a, a regular depository bank. Uh, which is what we're all familiar with. You put in money, it it creates bank credit, which is then lent out. And it's really an engine for growth uh, for many communities up until in the last 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, And and the public public bank of North Dakota is the Bank of North Dakota. It's been around for 93 years. And what they do is they put their tax receipts, any sort of uh, revenue that comes to the state, and, and their budget basically is $4.8 billion. But they put that money into the bank, create uh, a, a very large amount of bank credit, and, and lend it out in commercial lending programs and student loan programs and in all sorts of different ways. And so it, it serves as an engine for the, for the economy of North Dakota. And we, we think that, you know, that can be replicated in all 50 states. Um, our, our basic assertion is that public finance has been completely co-opted by private banks. Uh, 49 state treasurers, as well as um, many of the county treasurers, take the public monies, public tax revenues, and put them into private banks. And by doing that, they basically disenfranchise, disenfranchise themselves from using bank credit uh, to fund pub- public finance projects. And so um, our, our assertion is that uh, we, we want to return the public back into public finance, and the way to do that is with a public bank. Yeah, and let me just let's touch on some of the advantages that you you glossed over there. But I, I'm glad for you gave us that summary. Um, my recollection is, in, in, in North Dakota is the one state where this currently exists, right? That's correct. Okay, I, I don't believe North Dakota had any hiccup in the last uh, crisis of 2008, 2009. Its bank didn't go broke, did it? No, because the nature of, of public banks, and they exist throughout the world except for England, Canada, and the United States. But, but the, the fact of the matter is that public banks are counter-cyclical. So when you have interest rates going down to zero or near zero and you can't go any lower, what happens is public banks really turn on the, the uh, power of credit and they, they lend, they accelerate their lending, and so it's counter-cyclical to the credit contraction in this case in 2008. And in North Dakota, they did that. They expanded their credit, 
and uh, the the economy came through the crisis quite well. Actually, as I recall, because of the public bank, and I don't want to describe it to one factor, there were a number of factors that, that helped North Dakota, but North Dakota really didn't suffer the recession the rest of us did, did they? Uh, that's correct. They they uh, they came through without a negative budget, state, uh, any sort of revenue shortfall. They they came through without a decrease in their unemployment rate, uh, and 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 so they and and their foreclosure rate was the uh, the best relative to all fifty states. And so there are all different measures measures we can use, but right. uh, so, there was so, no hiccup whatsoever. So, so so for our listeners, I'm just trying to focus because because you know what I find fascinating. I've known about public banking now for gosh ten fifteen ten twelve years anyway. It's been around that long, hasn't it been? When did Ellen write the book? Uh, Ellen wrote the book in 86, 80, 87. It was, it was published. Yeah, so, so. It's, yeah, so I've known for longer than 10 or 12 years. I'm getting old, I guess. Time flies. Oh, no, anyway. wait, wait, am I, what am I saying? 2006, 2007. I'm yeah, sorry. Okay, okay that's more you. like it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Maybe sorry, I, lost sorry, it. Sorry. I felt like Japan. I lost a decade there. Yeah, yeah. 2006. Um, so, so we've had public banking for seven years. I think Hazel first started talking to me about it when she and Ellen first spoke, so maybe seven, eight years ago. So that's how long I've known about it. And our listeners probably have never heard of it before. So I want to just capture a couple of nuggets that you've said. Number one, South, uh, North Dakota, which has the only public bank in the United States, actually didn't suffer the recession the rest of us did, in large part because it has a public bank, that it is counter-cyclical, that when times got tough and credit got uh, stopped all over the world, it kept going in North Dakota, which meant that they didn't have layoffs, they didn't have the foreclosures, the best foreclosure rate anywhere in the 50 states, and they didn't have the pain of the recession. That's an amazing statement. And it's true, isn't it? Yeah, that's true, and it's been documented in, in Latin America. There's plenty of, uh, of public banks in, in South America, and, and we have documentation uh, that we've translated into English from Spanish, but basically it shows, the graphs show, that uh, public banks in, in many countries in South America increase their lending, the size of their lending portfolio precisely when bank, private banks were contracting. Yeah, by the way, one of the things that I find fascinating, because you heard me reference the Founding Fathers a minute ago, and and uh, I really do believe that they were a pretty smart group of folks. I mean, it's amazing what they were able to come up with, with such disparate personalities. And one of my favorite, one of the founders, my favorite personality was Ben Franklin. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that Ben Franklin, in his memoirs, was the first one to really articulate why we should have a public bank and promote it for the colony of Pennsylvania, didn't he? Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, I was in the uh, Historical Society of Pennsylvania just uh, three weeks ago looking through some of the documents that, uh, that he and others had, had uh, developed. And, and there's plenty of information about what the situation was in, in 1723 when Ben Franklin arrived in Philadelphia. He noticed there was essentially a recession. Uh, there, there was a, it was a lackluster housing market. People were unemployed, et cetera. And the reason why, the, the reason why he said that there was a recession, he didn't use that term, uh, but it was because the the money that was in circulation this, these are silver dollars that were uh, Spanish silver dollars had basically been used to buy exports from from England so or imports from England so so the money had left the shores of Philadelphia and and went to England and in return they got these nice uh, finished manufactured goods but without a monetary system uh, you know circ- uh, mon- money that was in circulation it caused a recession and that's precisely what, what what's been going on the last few years. Yeah, I, I think and by the way I keep referring to Ellen. I guess I should tell people that, that that's Ellen Brown and Ellen's um, book uh, in nine in 2011 the more recent one was called Web of Debt and I, I just want to recommend strongly 
that people um, follow Alan's work, reader books. I want to direct people to the publicbankinginstitute.org website. And um, I, wanted to, I want to declare one other uh, potential conflict of interest, and that is that Ellen got a very prestigious law degree from UCLA. I want to congratulate her. That's where mine came from also. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Anyway, a couple of years earlier, however. Uh, anyway, so the reason I'm, I'm mentioning this with Mark is, Mark, we get a question here. And the question is, apart from reading Ellen's books, which I think would be a great start, and apart from going to your website, which is what they should do, again, publicbankinginstitute.org. Go there, folks. And now that you have heard how vital public banking can be as an antidote to our badly broken uh, commercial banking system, and by the way, I don't know of anybody, Mark, that realize, I mean, less than 1% of the population even realize that this is an option. When everybody's mad at banks, that they don't know this option is crazy-making to me. Here's my question. We all the time are asked here, what can I do? It's just me, and I live in California, or I live in D.C., or I live in Philadelphia, or wherever. What can people do if they see the wisdom of public banking? Right. So, so I, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to get educated on, on, on this matter. And it doesn't t- you don't have to be a rocket science. This is really straightforward. We've provided a lot of materials on our website. And, and, and really, it, it comes down to whether or not you're willing to put in the time. And I'm not talking about a lot, but you know, a, a, few, hour, a few hours every week over the course of a, a month or two to, to really get to understand the, the topics and the issues and to practice you know, some of the sound bites you need to, to have. And all, all of that's on our website. But if, if you're willing to go through that, uh, just reach out to me. Send me an email, mark, M-A-R-C, at publicbankinginstitute.org. Uh, we are forming chapters in different states as well as counties. Uh, we've got a couple dozen right now, and, uh, and this is all part of the Public Banking Coalition. Uh, but I'm in charge of organizing that. And um, the, this is truly a grassroots movement to empower uh, state and county governments as well as city governments. We've got a number of cities, including the city of Philadelphia, uh, looking at uh, public banking as an alternative. I mean, they're, they're all faced with the same set of issues. Uh, any elected representative has four uh, decisions that they make, four, four set of alternatives that they make. One is to raise taxes, one is to cut expenses, one is to issue bonds, and the other is to sell public assets. And it's the conversation around those four things that, that any sort of budget decision is around. In North Dakota, they have put a fifth one on the table, and what they do is they say, you know what, we don't need to issue a bond in order to fund a water pipeline. We can, we can have our own public bank uh, fund it. And they just did that last year. $50 million went to fund a water pipeline. And because but, but, the... Wait, wait, just, just let, let's make sure people know what that means. So that means, ladies and gentlemen, that that state's residents didn't pay interest to greedy bankers somewhere on Wall Street. They kept the money. It was right. cheaper for them to build it with their own money because they already had the money. Why give the money to a bank and then pay the bank a markup to get the money back? That's what you're saying, yeah. right, Mark? Exactly. And, the, and the, the ideal thing about this is that whatever interest is paid by the ratepayers who are buying or purchasing the water, that money goes back to the bank. And then the bank, the bank declares that as profit, which is returned to the general fund to lower taxes. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, a close, it's a closed circuit. It's, it's a brilliant approach to public finance. Yeah. Yeah. And by, I, by the way, I want to just another one of my favorite people. By the way, is Thomas Edison for a whole bunch of reasons. I delighted when I was looking at your website prior to the show that you're quoting Edison, who believed that public financing of private projects was the way to proceed. Now, I, and that's just what you said, basically, public financing of a, of a pipeline or whatever with public money, i.e., through the bank of North Dakota, 
is a better way economically to proceed, and it also means that you don't have to go issue bonds. Now, I want you to focus that thinking on one more topic, uh, Mark, and that is the switch to alternative energy. Okay. It seems to me a public bank would be the ideal way to get photovoltaic, wind farms, and other uh, wind farms that convert to hydrogen, all these new technologies that are going to have to remove the fossil fuel industry from, being, from basically toasting the planet, isn't that going to be easier to do and better to do with the public banking approach? Uh, yes, it is. And so if, if anyone uh, of your listeners goes to the Bank of North Dakota Lending Services page, they will see 26 co- uh, commercial lending programs, uh, which means that the pool of credit that the bank creates is actually divvied up into these 26 programs. There's no reason why uh, any, you know, a half a dozen or a dozen of those couldn't be focused towards renewable energy. It's, it's really up to the people uh, for, for that respective uh, economic area to, to decide wh- what those lending programs are focused on. Are they going to be go- directed towards developing fossil fuel industry, or are they going to be developed towards renewable energy? And, right. and so uh, in, in, uh, as a case in point, in Germany, uh, they have a very strong public banking sector, and because of the uh, Fukushima disaster two and a half years ago, there was a, a, a strong commitment at the national level to get off of nuclear energy. They wanted to shut down their nuclear plants. And, and so as a public policy, that's great. In our country, we, we have statements like that all the time. But then the question is, how do you fund it? Well, in Germany, they have their own public bank, and basically they rolled out loan programs to fund the installation of solar panels in rooftops throughout the country. And that's why there, every, every May there's a new record that is set in Germany in terms of the total kilowatt hours that are being produced with new, renewable energy because they're funding it with their public banks. We could do the same thing here. Yeah, by the way, Germany is also the first nation in the world, I'd like to catch up with them, that's funding the conversion totally off the fossil fuel system and is going to be going towards wind to hydrogen, which is very exciting, and we're going to be talking about that in future shows. But before I leave this topic about what the listeners can do, because we're running short on time, I, I've seen this little this map basically on your home page, and I assume it's still fairly accurate. It tells you where there's activity. But if you had to, uh, could you just tell people quickly which states could somebody get active in and push the conversation forward on public banking? Where are the states that you really see that uh, citizen involvement could make a big difference? If you could name a few, we'd appreciate it. Uh, sure. The uh, states are the state of Vermont, state of Pennsylvania. Uh, Washington D.C. Uh, there's a very strong group in, within uh, within Washington D.C. as well as um, uh, the state of California, as well as the state of Washington. So it's those those uh, four or five areas which is the primary focus. Now, also within Northern California, uh, there are a number of counties because of their their size. There are a number of counties and cities which are looking at public banking. So that's Sonoma County, Mendocino County, uh, the city of San Francisco as well. Good. And, and if anything, that um, uh, what, what should our listeners do? What would you want from them? Because I really believe in public banking. I've looked at it exhaustively for eight or nine years now. I've, I've, I really believe in Ellen's work. I believe in what you're doing. By the way, give my warm regards to Frank, who worked with me, your research director who worked with me on that Hawaii uh, operation I, for a while. I certainly will. Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, so what should our listeners do? Okay, uh, number one is uh, read up on, on this topic and, and get to know it. And, and there's, a, there's plenty of uh, key messages and key messaging uh, that, that they can refer- people can reference on our website, publicbankinginstitute.org. Uh, number two, if you want to get involved uh, and form a chapter, uh, this, is, this is empowering. I mean, we're, we're speaking truth to power, and it's quite a riot. I mean, I've spent the last three years volunteering on this, 
and I have never been so thrilled. I tell my sons I'm going to go to my grave uh, doing this because this is the best, the best job I've ever had in my life. And, and what we do is, is talk about how we, we can get out of this trap that we're in. You know, we're, right. we're in, a, in, a, in a trap, basically, that causes us to be dependent upon Washington, and we're on the sidelines, as we have been over the last few months, yeah, when, looking at what's when you going see, on. When you see Jamie Dimon, who was celebrated until two years ago as the most powerful executive on Wall Street, admitting that the $9 billion fine he's staring at is the best he can hope for after $6 billion of losses, and he admitted at a recent securities meeting that, in fact, his company did some very bad things. When people are fed up enough with Wall Street, I hope they will realize that the core issue is the banking system. And what we right. need is a competitive banking system. Public banks, side by side with commercial banks, I put my money on the public banks. Exactly. So, so what we're doing is we're saying, let's take the money out of Wall Street banks. It's, it's well over a trillion dollars. If you, if you do the math, it's well over a trillion dollars of public monies that are in Wall Street banks. This, more than anything else, is going to break up the big banks. And bring it back to local level. Uh, either a state or county level, and what we end up doing is empowering ourselves. We create essentially economic sovereignty so that we can, we can fund the loan programs that we wish to prioritize according to our values, not Wall Street values. Well, I, I really appreciate your coming on the show today, Mark, and, I wanna, and I'll give your website one more time at the end, but I would like to invite you, if you'd like to write a short article, two, three, four pages at most, on um, why public banking and what people can do if they want to engage. I'd love to publish it as part of our uh, our series out of the World Business Academy. And Great, I'm sure that um, Hazel Henderson might want to write the forward for you. She's Great. written a lot for us. And uh, if you do get one to us, we would love to publish it. We're big believers. We think what you're doing is fabulous. And I just think that even though you're willing to do it for free, we ought to be willing to pay you to do it as a society because what you're doing is so good for all of us. It's really what we can do as individuals to support major changes in our society. Thanks, Ronaldo. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Mark. World uh, Pleasure, Mark. Publicbankinginstitute.org. That was Mark Armstrong. Really appreciate it, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, and, you know, Mark I think is the, the uh, Mark is the executive director, by the way. I'm sorry. One of the one of the major points that uh, from that conversation and for our listeners is that public banking is very good for small and medium sized businesses. I mean, to get access to capital right now, you're at the mercy of Wall Street, and Essentially, public banking democratizes that, that money creation and allows it to be used to support communities and local business. So I, I, I think it's the bottom line is going to be the way we finance the, the revolution in the economy and the future of business. Uh, Ronaldo, right now I want to turn to a couple of listener questions we got um, in between shows. One listener wrote to ask us uh, the, the name of some companies that are the largest offenders in harming the planet and some that are actually helping the planet. Yeah, um, thank you. And um, I think that actually came in from a small business owner, so I'm particularly happy because uh, I know that small business owner, and I know that she's been building a successful business for more than a decade, and she believes she can make a profit, which she's done every year, uh, as well as do what's right by society. And I, I would say that's the hallmark of what the Academy stands for. So let me just talk about who are the big polluters. The worst companies in the world today are the fossil fuel industry companies. Why? Because they are willing to toast the planet in the pursuit of profit. They're literally willing to see human civilization, as we know it, extinguished in their bold, aggressive pursuit of profit at all costs. You know the names of these companies, and you should not be fooled by the hundreds of millions of dollars of advertising they spend to lie to you. 
Okay, so there is no such thing as clean coal. It does not exist. Can coal be scrubbed? Yes, it's not being. Should it be? Yes, we should be sucking CO2 out of the air, but we're not. So what you have to do is recognize that every coal company is a public enemy number one, because even if they don't sell the coal in the U.S. anymore, it's decreasing, as you know. They are selling it to China, and either way, the coal goes up in the air, so CO2 emissions, which, according to Bill McKibben, should never have gone above 350 per million, and we're currently at 406, as measured by the official measuring station on top of Mount, uh, Mount Mountain, uh, Mauna Loa Mountain in, in uh, Hawaii. The second thing I want to talk about are the fossil fuel companies called Exxon, uh, BP, Shell, etc. Uh, Valero is a, re, a big refiner and, and, and uh, gas station chain owner. These companies are in the same category with the coal companies, maybe even worse. First of all, they perpetually spend enormous amounts of money lying to you. They tell you that fracking is safe. It isn't. It's deadly. Uh, it's killing people. The compounds and the chemicals are so dangerous that they're putting into the ground, they got no less a public citizen than Dick Cheney to quietly sneak through a rule, a law, that prohibits the EPA from requiring them to even disclose what those chemicals are. Independent chemical analysis has shown conclusively that it involves many known carcinogens, including benzenes and diesel oil derivatives. So there's no question they're putting stuff into the ground that is highly toxic to humans and that is going to migrate to our water. It has already, by the way, in Texas. It's migrating to our water because they, the technique of fracking is to blow apart the subterranean rock structures that was holding the gas or the oil. So when you blow the rock apart, of course, the water you pump down there, even if you try and suck as much out as possible, is still going to blow the rock apart, and therefore the toxic chemicals are going to migrate. Now... In addition to that, where do you get all that water at a time when water is increasingly a scarce resource? And where do you put all the dirty water that you use to suck back out of the well, even if you could get 80% of the genie back in the bottle? So fracking is a terrible, terrible lie. If the public health costs were included in the cost of fracking, I predict that the cost of natural gas would be 10 times higher than it is today and probably would be illegal. In fact, almost certainly would be illegal. Okay, with regard to oil, and, they, and they, because they have profits that are so egregious. You know, when I was a young man, I, I learned one way, and, and Watergate reaffirmed it, reaffirmed it, affirmed it. The way you can tell who's controlling the game is to look who ends up with all the money. Watch, ladies and gentlemen, for the quarterly profit results from the large oil companies. You will see them making hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars of profit per quarter. And as I've pointed out on this show... That's after paying egregious salaries to their CEOs and top management. That's after they've maintained a fleet of jets that they deduct as an expense. That's after they pay all their lobbyists, which they deduct as an expense. That's after they pay all their public relations people, which they deduct as an expense. That's after they pay for all the commercials to lie to you, to tell you what it is you should not believe. All of those things are deducted first, and they still have profits that are so egregious, I submit to you. As an economist, as an attorney, and as a businessman, there is no way any legitimate business can earn that kind of money. By definition, it's doing something that's improper to society. It's a criminal conspiracy, in my humble opinion. And how do you know it? Because the one industry, the only industry I know of, which is allowed to put their garbage on the street, so to speak, and not pay to haul it away, is the fossil fuel industry. Except the street they put it in is the, breathe, the air you breathe. So what I really want people to do is to get clear, those are the major enemies. And i got some good news for you. 
Bill McKibben is running of 350.org, and you ought to go to his website. It's a great one. Bill McKibben is running a campaign now, enlisting the college students of America, just like we did to end apartheid, to have the colleges and the pension funds start to disinvest, means sell their oil and gas stocks. I believe his timing is perfect. Why? Because the speed with which Germany is going to convert over to renewable energy, the speed with which I believe California could convert over to renewable energy, and many other jurisdictions on the planet when they see how fast and how cost-effective it is, as that happens, what you will see is there will be a sea change in the demand for fossil fuels, and at the same time where the cost of an additional barrel of oil keeps going up dramatically every year, their ability to get that cost out of the public will be dropping. I want to make a statement that most of you will believe will find hard to believe, but it's absolutely accurate. We can take in wind today, we can convert it to hydrogen, and we can deliver it to a fuel cell that can consume it at a cost equal to, frankly, less than the cost of a gallon of gasoline. Less than the cost of a gallon. I'll put numbers to that. So for $5 a kilogram, which has the same amount of power as two gallons of gasoline when you consume it in a fuel cell, for $5 a kilogram, which is $2.50 a gallon, we can make electricity in this country from clean, renewable fuel cells where the only byproduct is hydrogen and the only byproduct from that is water vapor. Now, we can do that today. Why don't we? Because of the political entrenched power of the fossil fuel industries. So those are the bad guys. Now, I, I could go on, but I think I've named more than 25 companies, if you take that list I just gave you, including the oil services companies like Halliburton and the like. Yeah. And by the way, I notice I didn't even include what happens when something goes wrong and a pipeline ruptures, as it did in Oklahoma this year, or when you have a, a horizon, deep horizon uh, disaster that's still affecting the Gulf, or in the case of nuclear over in Japan and TOPCO, the nuclear company in Japan, TEPCO, is without a doubt the worst company in the world. So if you want to have a number one worst inventor, it's the TEPCO people in, in Japan because they're dumping uh, 300,000 tons of polluted radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean every day such that the fish being caught in Hawaii, Alaska, Washington, Oregon, and California are now exhibiting toxic levels of radioactivity. So it's in the American Medical Association is saying that, not just me. So we need to monitor this thing terribly. What a, one, thing, one company I want to mention, though, because it came in as part of this question, and I'll end with this. I was asked about Walmart specifically, what to do if, just when you stop shopping Walmart. I want to explain something about Walmart. Walmart is actually one of the greenest companies in the world right now. Walmart has other problems which I hold them liable for, including <clears throat> not paying their, their people enough money to be a livable wage. Uh, they've been recently <laughs> pled guilty that they actually discriminated against women for many, many, many years. There are other employee-related practices at Walmart that are not acceptable that make them, to me, a rogue in the, in, in the, commerce, in the commercial sector. However, in the environmental world, Walmart is a standout success, and let me tell you why. Here's a company that doesn't pay its enough employees enough to live on, but is a leader in environmental and energy and in converting all their roofs to solar, putting windmills in their parking lot, becoming the largest sales, per, sales organization in the world of LEDs to replace bulbs. Why is Walmart doing that when at the same time they won't pay a living wage to their people? Real simple. It makes them a whole lot of money. Walmart's the smartest retailer in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, when I tell you we can convert and you see a company as smart as Walmart doing it just to make more profit, and I tell you the profit's there now, don't take my word for it. Take Walmart's. That's what makes them a green company because it is so much more economically viable. Did that answer the question, Matt? 
Yeah, thanks. Uh, we also had a question come in at the last minute about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is a free trade agreement that's currently under development. Um, we're, we're not going to have time to get into that on this show, but we will address it next, next month. Uh, Ronaldo, I want to turn now to our lightning round. The, sure. World Business, the World Business Academy is a nonprofit organization, and we give this outlook without any agenda, strictly as public service to our listeners. Uh, looking back at some of our recent predictions, you said to begin buying the S&P in December 2012 when it was at 1430, and today it's right around 1726, which is a 20% increase. Uh, also, we said to start selling gold at $1,690 in December of last year. Uh, now it's around 1320 which is roughly down 22%. Uh, what's your outlook on these assets and others you want to talk about today, Ronaldo? Thanks for that question, Matt. And, you know, um, first of all, ladies and gentlemen, uh, until 24 hours ago, I didn't know what the answer to this question was. Right. But I do want to say to you, I issued a, a sell recommendation on Monday to our closest followers. Uh, I told them on Monday to sell every bond, commercial as well as U.S., on Monday. Uh, if you'd have taken that advice, you'd already be about 3 or 4% ahead in, in, in less than a week. Why is it that I made that issue? Why did I issue that? And by the way, let's talk at some point, Matt, about how we could get more people aware of these instantaneous things I have to say. To, and by the way, when I tell people I've, uh, I issued a sell all bonds, I want you to know I had a significant bond portfolio and I sold it all. Uh, down to the very last bond that's U.S. denominated, I've kept my Brazilian bonds. Now, why is it so important that we had to sell all bonds? Because it was clear to me that if we went through the debt ceiling, there would be such havoc in the bond market that the value of those bonds would be highly in question and probably would deteriorate by 10, 20, 30% or more overnight. So a huge wipeout was coming, past the debt ceiling change. As I looked at it, however, I realized, oh my goodness, even if we do pass something to get us off the hook on the debt ceiling, it's still going to adversely affect those bonds. Why? Because the cost of borrowing is going to go up as a direct result of this whole silliness we just went through. As I said at the beginning of the show, we're still paying 60 basis points higher for U.S. debt, which is the, the ground floor, so to speak, of debt, since 2011 because of the last near miss, which wasn't as close as this one. So it came, became clear to me that the face value of bonds, which drop inverse to interest rate. So when the interest rate goes up for new bonds, the value of old bonds at a lower interest rate goes down. When I saw that, I said, oh my goodness, there's a real pinch coming in the bond world. So I'm going to get out of every bond I own, turn it into cash, wait till the dust settles, and then decide where to re-enter. But I suspect when I re-enter the bond market, the yield per bond on average will be higher by at least 25 to 75 basis points which means that I'll be getting that much more interest for every dollar I invest. So I issued this call, sell all bonds, on Monday. Now, Matt, what we should do, and I'm, I'm going to ask people to write in to um, whatever email address you give them. If people would like to be on a list, I really think we need to create a service where when I issue that kind of a sell recommendation or buy recommendation, people can do it and not wait for the next show because this show came on a Thursday – four days after my recommendation on bonds Monday. But frankly, if you're still holding bonds, it's too late. You already took the hit. So um, we ought to do something about that. If people are interested in having us help them with that, they ought to write. Where, where should they write, Matt? What Let's is, have everyone write do? into info at worldbusiness.org. 
Yeah. Tell us if you would like us to create a service that would give you instantaneous updates when major conditions in the market requires to issue a buy or sell recommendation. And let's see if enough of you want us to do that, that we can do it and we'll, 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 we'll put something together for you. Because one other very large investor uh, has asked us to consider doing that a couple of months ago, and we're, we're mulling it over right now. Okay, look, what else is going to happen in the next few months? Well, as you heard, uh, unemployment's going to have a little stumble. It's already clear that um, retailers uh, got hurt in October. Some of it will come back in November. Uh, but if you look at the statistics where 34% of the population spends for Halloween in the last two weeks of October, I would say that Halloween spending is going to get clipped a little. People are uh, – they lost several days of complete fear. The first two weeks of October was complete, uh, completely a, a depressant on the retail markets. Uh, and I think what you're going to see is that retail sales for this quarter have been hurt. I think they'll come back in the fourth quarter. They won't be as high as they would have been without this craziness. So look for return growth fourth quarter, but probably at least two to three-tenths of a percent below where it was last um, when we, when we, on the trajectory we were on. I believe we were projecting that the fourth quarter could do in excess of 2% real GDP growth. I'd have to lower that now and say it's probably more conservative. We used to say one and a half to two and a half. I'm going to say now one to two and probably below 2% would be a realistic fourth quarter guess. So uh, that would indicate that um, stocks will do a little bit better as you saw them come roaring back the other day uh, as a result of the um, possibility of a deal and you saw them come roaring back today. I think equities will, will recover fairly quickly because the market believes that two things will happen. Uh, the country is going to be stabilized for a few months. The belief on Wall Street this morning is that the, the crazies in, in, in the lunatic fringe are not going to pull this stunt again in February or January 15th, refuse to fund the government. I hope they're right, um, but I'm not willing to bank on it right now. So I would say that the forces pushing the market up are not going to have enough headwinds between enough tailwinds between now and January 15th to be able to make dramatic year-end gains in the market. So I think the market's going to probably go a little bit above sideways. Not great, but again not bad. In terms of gold, gold will take another hit today as it did yesterday and it will continue to be a bad investment for the time being. And there was a few minutes there where when we looked like we were going through the debt ceiling, that, that gold had a glorious moment, but gold's not coming back best based on the facts in front of us. You can anticipate that the Federal Reserve will not back off of QE3, or QE4, I guess we're on now. Um, they will not do that between now and December or Christmas, I believe. Consequently, uh, mortgage rates will not go up, which means if you're trying to buy a house, still a good time to buy it. Uh, in some areas of the country, which will be hurt less, I'm speaking to you from Santa Barbara, probably not of a lot of ill effects from the shutdown and the debt ceiling crisis here. If you live in places where there's a lot more people in the middle or lower middle classes, there the housing market will get hurt a little bit. There'll be a depressant on it. So you're going to see some, some fear in people. The confidence is going to go down again, as it did for the last couple, three weeks. And so I, just, I see a very tepid but decent retail season for the fourth quarter. I see stock market 
sideways or up a little bit probably. I see um, real estate, meaning residential real estate, will continue to be more valuable because mortgages will be more affordable. Prices are still pretty good. And I think you'll see the beginning of a bounce back in um, the commercial sector, meaning um, office buildings, which would have already been underway significantly. It was, starting to, it was starting to crank up actually about a month and a half ago, and this thing knocked the pins out of it because businesses don't like to expand add employees or take on new space in the face of this level of uncertainty. And frankly, for everybody on Wall Street or in my line of work, economists or people who look at macroeconomic factors, for everybody who tells you, oh, it's all going to be fine, they won't do this again, I don't believe any of us really believe that. Most of us are looking with one eye over our shoulder to say, wow, we've got the debts, we've got the this government shutdown could come again in the middle of January, and the debt ceiling could be a crisis again by the middle of February or sooner. So I'm really nervous about that. Let's see if this new law, which requires, quote-unquote, the Congress to reach an agreement on the budget by December 13th, let's see if they can achieve that. If they can, I'll be much more optimistic on various classes of investment. For right now, if you're in cash, stay in cash till the next show or until the next bulletin I issue. Uh, if you're invested in the market, you're safe. You can leave it there. Uh, if you haven't sold your gold yet, you probably ought to, but if not, hang on to it. We'll see what happens in January and February. And if you're still um, looking for ways to get into the residential market for real estate or the commercial market, it's time for you to dust off your calculator and see if, in fact, uh, it might make sense in your unique market. Uh, we do provide uh, service to people who want us to give us uh, give specific recommendations on specific markets, specific pro uh, types of arrangements by market, specific classes of assets. And uh, the Academy provides that for a fee, actually. Uh, to those who want a more specific drill down, but that's a good macro point to start with. Excellent. Well, I think that does it, Ronaldo. On behalf of the World Business Academy, thank you all for joining us. To all our listeners, uh, please come to our website at worldbusiness.org to connect with us in between shows. And again, send us any comments from the show today or questions uh, to info at worldbusiness.org. Yeah. By in the way, month, Matt, let me. Yeah. Let, let me just, just make two points before we go. One sure. I'll make, in the, uh, well, two points. Number one, remember when I told folks uh, several months ago, if you're going to buy stocks at this time, the ones I like are dividend-bearing stocks. That's what you want to go for. Uh, you know, you can get a 2% yield in a 1% world with a very safe company right now, and I still think that's your best. So with the fact that I didn't mention dividends, don't think I took that off the table. I just assume that when I'm talking the market, if you're not in an ETF or index, I'm assuming you're in dividend stocks or you want to get there. And uh, the second thing I want to make is just a personal um, announcement, Matt, before we close the show. I want people to know that a, a, a groundbreaking uh, thing happened this week. Uh, for the first time ever, uh, we've received a compelling report that tells us how many slaves continue to exist in the world. The number, shockingly, is 30 million. I want to Amazing. join with um, uh, former Secretary Clinton uh, and a number of major world leaders who have said uh, the Walk Free Foundation has done a tremendous service by pointing out to us that there are 30 million people today in modern-day world still in slavery. And I urge you to take a look at their report. Where are those 30 million people located, and what forms does that slavery take? I think it's a, a tragedy to, that we had to compile this report, but I'm glad it exists. Thanks, Matt. That's what I wanted to add. Thanks, Ronaldo, and thanks to everyone for listening. And uh, please do share this show with your friends and write us with any questions. It's info at worldbusiness.org. Until next time, thank you very much. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.